Revelation chapter 2, let's begin in verse 1. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil, and you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars, and you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake, and not, have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give him to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Let's pray together. Father, speak to your church. Help us, Lord. Help us to hear everything you want to speak to us. Help me, Lord. be able to communicate your heart. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. There we go. Maybe you can imagine, after reading through these verses, um, why I might be so emotional. It's always embarrassing. (laughs) He loves us so much. If I can get it all out in the beginning and then I'll be okay. You guys say I love your heart. You get up here and do this go through this. All right. We have seen as we've started through this book um, an outline that God has provided for us in chapter 1, verse 19, where he said, write to John, write the things which you have seen. So all the things in chapter 1 that he he has seen already, namely the Lord Jesus Christ, and all that God has revealed to him related to the lampstands and the seven stars in his hands, write all that down. And then the second part, which we're going to start today, the second um, part of the three parts of the book of Revelation, how it's divided up, write the things down which are, and then he said write the things which will take place after this, which begins from chapter 4 on to the end of the book. So this section 2 deals with the things that are, and everything related to the church age and what the church needs to hear all the way up to the rapture of the church, because really the church age ends at the rapture. It doesn't mean that we end, of course. We're going to live free forever. But the church age, where he's working through the church on the earth, ends at the rapture of the church. The ministry, God's ministry, continues in the Great Tribulation through the 144,000 
about whom we're going to read as we make our way through the book of Revelation and, and other means that he uses to preach the gospel and save people. People are still going to be getting saved in the great tribulation, um, but we're going to be gone. And I'm thankful for that because there's a marriage supper of the lamb that I have an appointment to, <laughs> with that I want to go to. And I like to eat and I'll have a new body, which won't matter. <laughs> it won't matter how much I eat or whatever. I'll probably have more self-control, I'm, I, I suspect, uh, then with the new body. But uh, So we're going to be looking at these seven churches. And God's going to speak something very specific to each church. And some people ask, you know, why these seven? Remember, we went over, we took the time to go through the meaning of the number seven. And the meaning of the number seven means fulfillment or fullness or, or perfection in the scriptures. And so there weren't just seven churches in Asia Minor at this point. There are hundreds of churches in Asia Minor, maybe thousands of churches by this time in church history. But why, so why did he choose these seven? When I think that the Lord Jesus, because he has something to say to every one of the churches, but he looked at what he would say to these seven churches that he lists in chapter one. And, and he knows that, he knew that whatever he had to say to them would constitute the fullness of what he would say to all the churches. And so he limited it to these seven. That's why it's not an accident that he chose seven. He's communicating that the fullness of what he has to say beyond what the rest of the New Testament says is, is the fullness of what he would say in, in the church age. And so that's very important for us to know. Now, these, these letters can be applied three different ways. First of all, these letters to the, these seven churches, uh, of course, have their first application to those local churches at that time and f- to the local church today. Any given church at any time can look at these uh, letters and have instruction for them. But also, it, it, it speaks of those, of course, those churches back then, but that's number one. Number two, our churches today. But then thirdly, uh, the individual life, because we are the church. The church isn't the building. You know, we learned as a kid, you know, this is the church. How do we do it? The steeple and open the doors and there's, oh, I got to do it this way. Open the doors and there's all the people. See, I remember that. You know, we, we remember, you're, some of you are like, that's weird. Never seen that before. Uh, but we are the church. The word church in the New Testament is ecclesia. So where we get our word ecclesiastical or all these different words. But it means the called out ones. That's what the word church means. It's not a building. There's a, there's, we're, we're referred to or we're told about the, the household of faith. So it's talking about the individual believers that go out into this world and then they come together and they fellowship together and God has many purposes for that. So all of these instructions can have application to our individual lives as well. There's a structure also to each one of these letters and it's not exact every time, but these general, there's a general structure. First, Jesus addresses the messenger of the church. Then he gives a self-description of himself, which reveals something, this is important, reveals something about himself that the church needs to remember in order to fix the problems that they have in their church. Okay, that's very important, as we'll see that as we go through. He also will tell them, I know your works. He, then he will give them a commendation um, or something good that they're doing. And, and, and there were two churches that he couldn't do that for. Uh, next, he rebukes or exhorts the church whatever is needed there, and there are two churches that, that there's nothing that he could say, and that's, a, that's what we're aiming for. Also, he reminds them of his coming, and it's a pretty regular theme that happens. And then he exhorts them, to, he who has an ear, let him hear. 
what the Spirit is speaking. So he exhorts the churches to be spiritually discerning and listening and perceiving of what he's saying. He knows that most of them have physical ears. He's not saying that. He's saying spiritual ears to hear, to, to perceive and receive the message that he's communicating. We, the sad thing is, is that all of us at any given time can, can have our tuner or our radios turned away from that frequency. And we're not hearing spiritually. And so we need to listen and, and pay attention to that. And then there's a promise to overcomers he usually gives. So that's the general structure of these letters. And so the first thing, though, is that he gives, when he, when, when he has this assessment, he's communicating that he knows each church. It's not that he's aloof and far away in heaven and, he, and knowing what's going on in each church. That's true because he knows all things. But he's already gone out of his way to communicate that he knows these things, not just because he's all-knowing, but that he's in the midst of the church. Jesus comes to church. He's very faithful. He's in church every, every time we come and gather. Anytime two or more believers are, are gathered in his name, he said he is there in the midst. And so, Jesus... Why we come here? Why do we do all of what we do here? And fellow, it's for God. It's for Him to enjoy. The person that all of us should be thinking about the most related to who's enjoying the service is the Lord Jesus. I believe if a lot more churches were concerned about what the Lord Jesus thought about their service, there would be a lot more things that would be beneficial to the body of Christ instead of what they're thinking it should be about or whatever because it's His church. It matters to him. Everything he sees, everything he hears, how we treat each other, how we love, how we're friendly, all matters to him. He's walking in the midst and he has an opinion about everything. And I think about that as a pastor. I, the last thing in the world I would want was be this church be of me. I want it to be of him. I want it to be of his spirit. And I'm hoping that everybody's hearing the spirit together. The leadership, everyone else in addition to leadership, are hearing the spirit and shaping the church how he wants it to be shaped so he gets to enjoy it. It's the most important thing that he gets to enjoy uh, when he comes to church or when he's in our midst more than, when, than anyone else. So as we start to go through these letters to these churches, we all should want his church to be according to his preference. And he has that right. His, he has the right to, have, to, to want to have his church be how he wants it to be. And it's not just for leaders to know. It's for everybody to know. Remember, there's the, the leaders are called to equip the saints for the work of ministry. But then the rest of Ephesians 4 talks about each one of, the, each one of us does its share to build up the body in, in love. So there's two aspects of disciple making. It's not just the leaders. It's, the, it's everyone else doing their part. It's not a spectator type of situation whatsoever. I want to give you a little bit of background on Ephesus. I won't spend too long, but we need to understand a little bit about the, the city because it affects the church. Every city affects the church that it's in and the community and the geographical area. Ephesus was a, a port town. It was a very influential town. It was about 200,000 people in population, about the population of, of Modesto in our area. And it was, there was trade going through. It was a port city. There, if you went from Rome to the Middle East, you would usually go through Ephesus on your way there. It was also a free city. What that meant was Rome gave certain cities freedom to do certain things that they didn't give other cities freedom to do. So they could have their own government. There wouldn't be any Roman military there. It was very valued. If you look in Acts chapter 18 where Paul is is being used by the Lord so powerfully, it's threatening their, their idol worship business. 
there's a riot and so forth, and the city manager comes and basically says, if we don't stop this, we're going to lose our privilege as a free city. And that stopped it completely. They knew the value of being a free city. And so that's kind of their their um, relationship with Rome. But then they were a very religious city. There was a temple called the Temple of Diana. Diana was a, a, a goddess of fertility, and that temple was one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. It took them forever to build. And, and it was a place where a person could go and worship this goddess of sex, and, um, and, and there were temple prostitutes, and some people have referred to them as prostitutes. That probably is a better fitting uh, term for them. But they, they would worship that false goddess by uh, expressing themselves sexually and so forth. But also that temple was a place of refuge for criminals. Wasn't that nice? That's a great thing to have as a, as a place of worship where you could have asylum there. You could escape. If you were wanted for some horrible crime, you could seek asylum in that temple and they couldn't come get you once you were in that temple. And so that was thrown into the mix of dysfunction there. So there's just so much going on there that was wicked. And you might look at that situation and say, wow, it'd be really hard to establish a solid church there. And God comes in and says, nope, very easy. Light shines the brightest in the darkness and people will know their need because they're empty inside and they're expressing their emptiness through all these different ways. And so he came in and what did he do? He planted a solid church. And he led the Apostle Paul to be there for the longest time that he was in any city on any of his missionary journeys. He was there almost three years, teaching, pouring into leadership, just laboring. And, and in the midst of this wickedness, you know, I think of L.A. and think about that city. And, and it's been had a re- bad reputation for a long time related to sin and so forth. But that's where Billy Graham's first crusade was. And weeks of, of people getting saved and so forth. I mean, you, you think of maybe like the, the hippie movement and all of the drugs and all of that. And what came, what did God do right in the middle of that? The Jesus movement. And in Southern California, God used Pastor Chuck. And there was a great revival. God's not limited by wickedness. He's not scared. We shouldn't be scared to go in to wicked places and, and, and preach the gospel. Our family can represent a, wi- a wicked part of our family. Don't be intimidated. Don't be afraid to go in there and preach the gospel. Because God, God backs up his gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation for those who believe. I think of our area here. What is, what is this, this valley known for? Meth and drugs and car th- car uh, uh, people stealing cars and you know I was raised in Modesto and there's a lot of bad things going on in in this valley and it's known for a lot of things a lot of times these cities around here are, are put on the list of the worst places to live in the country you know thanks appreciate that send you a postcard uh, but you know God God has a very I mean the Modesto has been known as the Bible Belt or the valley is known as the Bible Belt of California and I believe Manteca is at the center of many different cities. And I believe he's going to be planting a lot of churches out of our church. Just like Ephesus was used as a place where many churches could be planted from. And so that's encouraging to me. God's not limited. It's interesting that we're looking at a church here in the, in the church of Ephesus that had been around by this point for 40 years. Paul planted this in the early 50s. In the early 60s, he wrote a letter to it from prison in Rome. And, and, and so this church has been going on now for 40 years. It's in, it's in the low to mid-90s now in, in, um, 
with John writing all of all of this this vision here in this this uh, book of of Revelation. So it's interesting to see we can see now in the New Testament we can see a church being planted, we can see it progress, and then we can see that. You know, 40 years later, and I think of our movement here, it's almost 50 years. Forty. Next year will be 50 years since the Lord uh, called Pastor Chuck to pastor a church called Calvary Chapel in Costa Mesa. So where are we, gonna, where are we at as a movement and all of those things? Those are all searching, and I'm sure they're going to be covering a lot of this at the pastor's conference this year, being the first one with Pastor Chuck being in heaven. Where are we at? You know, and we're not in any danger. We're, you know, because the foundation is God's word. The, foundation, the, the movement was never built on a man. It was, it was led by the Spirit to be something that glorifies Jesus, having him be the center of everything. I remember Chuck Pat saying so many times, fellas, keep Jesus at the center of everything, you know, and preach the word and don't leave the word and, and so forth. That's such a solid foundation. There's so many churches that die off and denominations that die off because they leave the word of God and they stop being sensitive to the leading of the Spirit. And Jesus says, don't do that. And we're going to see that as we look at these churches. Now, he begins the letter in verse 1. He says, to the angel of the church of Ephesus write, these things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the golden lampstands. So he says, to the angel of the church of Ephesus. And I've mentioned before that this word angel is not, I don't believe is an angelic being. The word angel means messenger. So he's saying to the messenger of the church of Ephesus, and I believe this is the head elder of the church. And I believe that God calls a head elder or a senior pastor over every church. Sometimes people don't like that these days. They don't like that church government structure. But Paul wrote to Timothy, wrote to one man, to make fundamental changes in the churches, church that, that, that Timothy oversaw, which happened to be Ephesus at the time. He wrote very specific things for one man to be used. God's always used a small amount of people uh, to, to lead, and he works through leadership. And, and hopefully the, the leader is, is listening to the Spirit through all the leaders and all the people in the church and not wanting the church to be about um, them. You know, there's one person that's going to give an account for everything that happens in this church, and it's me. Ultimately, I'm going to be held account for everything that happens. So everything matters to me. My heart goes out to every area of ministry and so forth, and, and I fear God. I'm going to have to give an account for him. It's not my church. It's his church. And, I'm, and so that, when he says to the messenger of the church of Ephesus, I'm reading it to the, to, the, to the senior pastor of the church of Ephesus, right? And I want to listen to everything that he has to say through every one of these things because of the place that he's uh, put me. And, and, but see, we're all a part of that. We're all a part of making the church what it's supposed to be. It's not a one-man thing. Then Jesus reminds um, them and us that it is he who holds the seven stars in his right hand. And, and that he who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. He's reminding them something about himself that will help them related to whatever issue they're dealing with, leaving their first love. So somehow him saying that the seven stars, which are the seven pastors of the churches, we've already covered this, and the seven golden lampstands are the seven churches, something about that is supposed to call us back to going back to our first love. And we'll deal with more of that uh, in a moment. Notice in verse 2, Jesus begins his commendation or what they were doing right. He says, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they're apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And so those first four words, I know your works, it just echoes and 
goes through my heart and mind all the time related to our church. I know your works. That's the most important opinion about anything related to our church. What he thinks. He goes, I, I know them. He sees everything. Again, he's in the midst of it. And he says, I know your labor. That word means to cut. It means to work and cut until you're exhausted. It's like a picture of, a, of someone chopping wood. That would be very dangerous if I got an axe and started trying to cut wood. Trust me, for many reasons. But you would be exhausted. Have you ever cut wood? I mean, you, you get tired really quickly. And so he says, I know your labor, and we are all called to labor for the Lord. He's going to get into it even more in, in a little bit. But this is, this is searching to me and to the rest of the body of Christ, especially in our culture. It's very easy to be religious and go through the motions and do the minimum that we could possibly get away with and still have our life. But he says, take up your cross daily, follow me, die to yourself, and do what I've called you to do. Get your focus off yourself and labor. And we will be willing to labor for so many things in the body of Christ except labor for ministry, in ministry, for the things of the Lord. And the picture in the New Testament is that people were worn out, worn out uh, for the Lord. And God exhorts them to not be worn out, as we'll see in a moment. He says, I know your patience. That means to bear under pressure. So he tells them, I know it's hard. I know it's difficult. But you have been patient. You have held up under that pressure. The Holy Spirit gives us patience. It's a fruit of the Spirit. But also circumstances produces patience. We're told that in James chapter 1. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you face various trials, because you know the tempting of the trying of your faith produces perseverance. And, and so that's what he's working towards. So he's saying, I know these things. I know you're working hard. I know you're bearing under this pressure of, of, of the difficulty of life. I know you're having patience. And then he says, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. Evil is supposed to bother us. And in our culture, there's so many lowering of the bars. We put up with evil all the time. Some often we're entertained by it or we're, we're around it and it doesn't bother us. We're supposed to have a sensitive heart against evil and have, it, have that sensitivity bother us. But he says, you, 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 uh, those that you, you've tested those that, that are apostles and are not. That's the real description of those who are evil. They're preaching false doctrine. And so he says you need to be sensitive to those things and be willing to test. You know, what's interesting is that the Apostle Paul, back in Acts chapter 20, when he was on his way to Rome, finishing up his, his uh, three missionary journeys, he calls these Ephesian elders. Forty years ago, before this, he calls the Ephesian elders to Miletus there, and, and he says a lot of wonderful things. And it's good to read that in light of looking at this church of Ephesus. But one of the things he says is this. In Acts chapter 20, verses 29 through 31, he says, For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore watch, and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. He warned them that false teachers were going to come. He said, even among you. Imagine them going, me? Among us? I mean, there, there's people that rise up that have an agenda, that want to take away disciples for themselves. And, there's, and they'll teach whatever they have to teach to get it done. And so now we're seeing 40 years after that, 
40 years after, he commends them and says, you have done that. You have tested those people who claim to be apostles and are not, and he commends them. And sometimes people get kind of riled up. Oh, you can't criticize, and that's not very loving. And Jesus says, you test what they say. If it doesn't line up, you reject it. Don't be afraid to reject them. Don't be afraid to... And he named names. He warned the flock by name so they wouldn't be sucked into that, to that false teaching. And I'm not afraid to do it. I will name a false teacher from this pulpit. The Lord leads me to do it. To, to warn you and to warn my own heart against that. So he says, good job. Good job on these things. You're working hard. You're having patience. You're testing those people that say that they're of God and are not. Good job. And, and so he, he, he loves to encourage. You know, and this is a good pattern for correcting anybody. Start with the good things. Start with the things you're noticing that you appreciate. Especially with our kids. What are you catching them doing right? Man, it's very important to notice what they're doing right. And when people know that you appreciate them, that you, that you appreciate what they're doing right, it's so much easier for them to hear the hard things. And Jesus, he's a model for us in this. And sometimes he can't say anything at all. He's not going to make things up. That's a good lesson. But uh, and, and if there's nothing to correct. You know, you ever been in a job re- review where they're just got to find something? I mean, when you're trying your hardest, you're a great employee, and they're nitpicking on the tiniest because they just feel, I have to find something wrong with this person. Jesus doesn't do that. He's not going to add something that's not there. And I appreciate that about him. So there's another uh, commendation in verse 3. Look with me there. He says, and you have persevered and have patience. So he says it again. Anytime Jesus says something twice, it's very important. I mean, he says it once, it's important. He says it twice, very important. You have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. So he says, you have had perseverance and patience. It's been difficult. We can't be broadsided by life circumstances and think that somehow God's forgotten me or his, his, his word isn't true anymore. He just took a break and he's not on the throne anymore because I'm going through difficult times. Jesus warned us and said, in this life you will face tribulation, but be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. We can't be surprised by that. It's going to be hard. And I believe in this culture as it gets worse and worse and more ungodly and more ungodly, there's going to be more pressure on Christians and it's going to be good for us. Are we going to stand up for the word of God and the truth, no matter what the consequences, or are we going to fall away? And that's a good exhortation. These people did not fall away. They stood strong. And he says, you have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. This is the second time he's used the word labor. He says, you have labored for my name's sake. Again, it's searching for all of us. When have we, when, are we laboring for eternity? Are we laboring for the kingdom? Are we laboring for the things of the Lord? Or are we laboring for everything else and adding a few of those things in to make sure we don't want to overdo it? We'll overdo it maybe on other things, but we don't want to overdo it. And we don't, we don't want to overdo it in ministry, obviously. But let's be worn out for the things of the Lord. I mean, not growing weary. He's going to tell them to, that you haven't grown weary. I don't mean that, where you're spiritually and emotionally drained. I'm talking about physically worn out. You ever wonder why Jesus fell asleep in that boat? I mean, there's a storm going on. I mean, how heavy sleeper was he? He wasn't taking sleeping pills or, I mean, there was nothing like that. How could he sleep in that storm? He was physically exhausted. Not emotionally, not spiritually, but he was physically exhausted. And it's a beautiful expression of worship when we are physically worn out for the things of the Lord. You don't have to be in full-time ministry to do that. 
It's what, everything that God's called us to do. Eternal things. Are we sowing and laboring for eternal things? Or are we, so, are we laboring for temporal things that are passing away? Very searching for each one of us, myself included. But notice he says, and have not become weary. We can kind of think that weariness is a good thing. That means we've been laboring. And sure, it's understandable that we're, what we're weary because we've been doing so many things for the Lord. He tells us to not be weary. In Galatians, he says, don't be weary in well-doing. For in due season, you will reap if you do not lose heart. He's not talking about physical weariness there. He's talking about the heart to, to be worn out spiritually, to be worn out emotionally and so forth. And he says, he commends them and says, you have not become weary. So that means that God's expectation for us is not only that we would be laboring and wearing ourselves out for the things of the Lord, but that we would be doing it in a biblical way so that we're not a spiritually and emotionally um, weary. So that standard is even greater than we thought. Some of us are not laboring at all for ministry and God's working in our lives to get us to to be engaged in that because that's what a disciple does we can't be like Jesus if we don't serve Jesus is a servant so we can't be like him if we're not serving others in the body of Christ but but even in the in the midst of all of that he says don't be spiritually uh, you know in all these other ways weary stand strong and so we have to be dependent upon the spirit and we have to be doing the things that he's called us to do If you're doing the things he's called you to do and you're dependent upon the Spirit to do them, you will not become spiritually weary and worn out. You may be physically tired, which is fine. Sometimes I come in on Sundays and I'm exhausted. Today I'm exhausted. Physically I'm exhausted. Spiritually I'm doing wonderfully. But I'm tired. I'm physically tired. I am ready for a little break. It's been a a good long stretch of hard, you know, being worn out. So he tells that to all of us to to not become weary. Then he gets to the exhortation in verse 4. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. And this is why my heart is so soft and tender. Because you can be working like crazy, even working biblically with his power, so you don't become weary, and and you can do it all without your first love. Let's just really let that settle. You'd be doing all without your first love. The weight of that should hit us. Because the deception is as long as I do the right things, and the deception is as long as I work hard, and even doing it in a biblical way where I'm not becoming weary, that, I'll be, that I'm okay. And that's not necessarily true. Because he says, I can do all of those things and still have left my first love. And no one from the outside would look at Ephesus and go, They've left their, left their first love. No one can know that. That's not um, uh, something that you can measure. There's no metrics for that. To know and measure from other, looking at other people's lives that they have crossed over and left their first love. It's a private matter of the heart. Everyone else can see us laboring and wor- being worn out for the things of the Lord. If physically, you know, and even spiritually we're doing great. We're not growing weary. But we are far away from, uh, uh, um, uh, from the Lord. Think of your wedding day. I remember that. Next month is our 20th wedding anniversary, me and my bride. And you and I've done, I've, I've officiated some weddings. I've done premarital counseling. And usually, not always, but usually the bride is the most excited about the wedding. The broom is most excited about the honeymoon many times. It's just truth. And, and, and it's not just because of the physical things or anything like that related to the honeymoon. 
Um, what's a blessing to both parties related to the honeymoon is that they're alone. The physical side of things is just one small part of that. They're alone with each other. The passion of first love is to be alone. That's the passion. That's all you want to be is alone with that person. And our groom, the Lord Jesus, longs to be alone with us. It's not a religious thing that he's called us to. Motions. It's, it's, it's not going through rituals. The flesh loves that. The flesh loves to go through rituals. does outward going through the motions. But my heart can be a million miles away from God and go through all the motions and fool everybody. But he wants our heart. The most valuable thing that you possess, as far as he's concerned, is your heart. He wants it. All of it. Why? Because it's, you know, appropriate theologically or, you know, uh, you know all the, from a mental standpoint, it's fitting that he has our hearts theologically. But he's madly in love with us. Madly in love with us. He doesn't want a divided heart. He wants a single focus. You want your spouse to be totally committed to you. Not looking anywhere else. Not focused on anything else. You want them totally focused on you. He doesn't want to compete with all the other things in this life. Not even ministry. Not even ministry done in a biblical way. He doesn't want to compete with it. He wants nothing competing with our hearts committed to him. He wants that alone time. Oh, Lord, speak to your church. Got this here. Might as well use it. Notice he doesn't say you've lost your first love. He says you've left it. You don't lose it. You don't, well, where'd it go? You misplace it. You leave it. You leave it for something else. You and I allow something to be more attractive. Like with any adultery. And we leave. We don't lose. We leave. And he gives us the solution in verse 5. Remember, therefore, where you have fallen. Repent and do the first works. Or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Tell them to do three things. Remember, repent, and do. These are all present tense verbs. It's not a one-time thing. This is something that we regularly have to do, is remember these things and, and, and repent. Notice he says, from where you have fallen. Leaving your first love is falling. Do we see that in the passage here? I think it's as clear as anything. Leaving your first love is falling. We think of falling like a big moral failure and someone commits adultery or whatever in a physical sense, but you can also fall spiritually by leaving your first love. And he says, you were at a place that was higher than where you are now, and you have fallen down to that lower place. Look up and see the place from which you have fallen. It was higher. It was better. There was life associated with it. It was spiritual blessing and peace. And he wants that back. Remember what your life was before when you were walking closely with the Lord and you had that close love and intimacy with him. Remember that honeymoon? You know the romance of it? 
He wants that time back. He wants that intimacy back. You remember when you first came to know the Lord? Man, at the men's retreat that we had, Pastor Matt Valencia at Calvary Chapel Santa Cruz was teaching on this passage, and he started talking about that. And the Lord brought me back to that day 24 years ago. Kid with no hope. Saved. So think back where you were when you first received the Lord. How your life was. What you spent your time doing. What were your priorities? Where'd you spend your money? Where'd you spend your time? That's what he wants. He's longing for it. But he says, repent. You have to repent. It's a sin to leave your first love. Turn from that. Turn back to him. And then spend time with them and fall in love with them all over again. Any relationship requires investment. Any relationship for sure worth having. You put that as a priority. And it's a relationship that we have with him. You have to invest in it. Just like you with your marriage or any other friendship. How much does it hurt you when one person doesn't do their part in that friendship or in that spouse relationship? Hurts. We don't have a one-sided relationship with him. It's two-sided. He's right there waiting, extending everything. And we can sometimes treat it as if it's one-sided. We need to come back. Then he provides the warning. Or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Well, what does that mean? (laughs) There's a warning. It's serious. Well, the lampstand we saw is the church. And the lampstand is referring to something that produces light. And he's called all of us to be salt and light and be an influence. So for a church, if a church has left its first love collectively, they're going to lose their influence. They're going to lose their place of influence in this world and their fruitfulness. Individually, it's the same way because the church is made up of individuals. We will lose our fruitfulness. But the problem is, over time, we cannot even care that we've lost our fruitfulness. We don't care that we're not making a difference for eternity. We're so focused on the temporal and now, which I know that there's a certain, obviously, focus that we need to have to be good stewards in this life. We have to focus on the things of this world and so forth and and, and just living our lives. But he said, seek first the kingdom of God. He didn't say, seek it fourth or third. He said, seek first the kingdom of God. Put him first. When he called those disciples, he didn't say, here's the contract. This is where we're going. I want you to know exactly where we're going, how long we're going, where we're going to end up. He doesn't say any of that. There's no contract. There's no, you know, guaranteed money or, you know, uh, all these perks and so forth. We just say, I'll follow you wherever you lead. And that's that's the deal that we made wherever we wherever he would lead. We agreed to that contract, uh, transaction when we got saved. And so some of us may have turned from that. And now we have been following him like he's called us to follow him. And, and to be sacrificially giving our lives to him and, and, and let him use our lives. So he says, I will come to you, notice, quickly. He's going to put this off. He says, I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. That's the second time he's used the word repent. We need to take that seriously. We need to repent. Now he adds uh, one last commendation in verse 6. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He uses the word hate twice in the verse. Nicolaitans, we don't know for sure what those deeds were, but most people get a good sense from what the word means. Um, Nico is the word Nike. 
It means to conquer. And Laetans means the people. And so it's very likely that there was this ruling over the people in an inappropriate way. And Jesus hates that. He hates when people are lorded over. He told the disciples that the greatest among you should be your servant. Don't be like the Gentiles that lorded over them. You need to serve. And, and, and you say, why does he put that in here? How does it relate to his first love? What did he say about himself? I hold the seven stars in my right hand. That's the pastors. And I walk in the midst of the seven churches. My influence and my power is among you. All those things are there for you to grow and, and to, to uh, have that first love be encouraged and and strengthened and so forth. But he doesn't want anyone to be a mediator between them and God. No go-betweens. He rent that temple veil from top to bottom, demonstrating you don't have to go through a priest anymore. You don't have to go through a system anymore. See, that's commuting intimacy. What if you went on your honeymoon and there was a chaperone? How fun would that be? Just, you know just coming along, just to supervise. See, what would that do? That would militate and go against intimacy. He doesn't want anything in between us and him at all. And those, those people that were ruling over the people, they were, a, they were a stumbling block. They were in between the people and God, and God hated it. In Matthew 23, Jesus went off. I don't, can I say that? Went off? I mean, he went off on those Pharisees, talking about how much of a stumbling block they were. Any time that someone gets in the way between the people and the Father, that's what Jesus was upset about. That's why he cleared out that temple twice in his anger. Oh, wasn't, you'd be rebuked today by some believers. You're not being very loving, Jesus. You know, that's not very Christ-like. <laughs> I, I mean, but that anger of being a stumbling block between God and, and, and his people, it ruins intimacy. It ruins that first love relationship. Now the promise for the overcomer in verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. So here he says, as is his custom with these churches, he who has an ear, let him hear. And that's what my prayer for all of us is that we're hearing the Spirit. I think he's speaking so clearly right now. It's it's amazing. That's one of the reasons why I'm emotional, because I know he's doing that. But he says, look what the Spirit says to the churches. First of all, when this Jesus speaks, the Spirit's speaking. The Spirit is the, uh, is the Spirit of Christ, we're told in Scripture. It's, they're the same thing. But he says, what the Spirit says to the churches. Did you see that it's plural? Wait a minute, I thought he was just writing to Ephesus. See, that, he's revealing here, this is a message for all churches. In all times, in the church age, this message. And he's binding not just on them, it's binding on all churches. So we all hear it together, and we all hear it corporately, but we also hear it individually, and he has application for each one of us. And he says, if you overcome, I will give to eat you will, to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. And we're going to get to that in the book of Revelation. We're going to see the tree of life again. There's a tree of life in the, in the garden, and after they sinned, God prevented them from eating from that tree. But now that everything's restored, when, as we're going to be seeing at the end, the tree of life is there again. And so I can't wait to eat of that. But he says, overcome. Part of, part of overcoming is, is having a close intimacy with Jesus. It's the only way you can overcome. So he says, go back to your first love. And it, as you overcome, I will reward you. I will bless you. 
And he's going to say that to all these churches. So may we hear what the Spirit says to us related to this. And if we need to come back, we need to repent. Do the former things. I missed that part. But he says, do the former things. Remember from where you've fallen. Do the things that you did in the very beginning. Have that relationship. If I, if I were counseling a married couple, and I would say, what did you do in the beginning of your marriage? What, did you, what are the things that you did that were really fostered that intimacy? I bet you those things are gone or, or greatly reduced. Do those things again that work on that intimacy. So I hope the Spirit um, has spoken many different ways to, to many diff- different hearts this morning. I'm glad I made it through it. Let's pray together.